Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Anytime fitness is for real people with real fitness goals. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us aren't training for marathons or half marathons or even half half marathons. Only time most of us are running at all is if we're trying to make a connecting flight. Wouldn't have been late if we didn't stop to buy a headphone dongle. Point is, you got to be ready. You do not want to deal with rebooking. Anytime fitness, where real people help you make real progress. Join today and get a plan for training, nutrition, and recovery. Is it time to change your approach and switch to Air Supra, Albuterol Budesonide? Now you can virtually connect with a doctor to discuss your options and see if it's time to make a change. If appropriate, you may even be able to get a prescription for Air Supra the same day. Talk to a doctor today and see if Air Supra is right for you. Visit airsupraconnect.com to connect with a provider. Octavian launched his campaign in the first weeks of 33 BC. He began in the Senate with the latest reports of Antony's behavior. What, he asked, was going on in Alexandria? What had happened to his old comrade? What could explain all these un-Roman antics? Every day the stories became more shocking. Antony had adopted all kinds of strange Egyptian cults. He'd lost his Roman virtues and become a slave to luxury. He lazed around all day on a gilded couch, wearing a jewel-encrusted robe and carrying an oriental scepter. He spent all his time drinking the local wine and went to the toilet in a chamber pot of solid gold. He feasted every night on weird, un-Roman dishes, enthralled to the whims of his Egyptian queen, and at palace banquets he even massaged her feet like a slave. So that is uh, from a top children's book about the life of Cleopatra, Queen of the Nile. Uh, You can guess the author. So Tom Holland that's Octavian's propaganda talking about Antony and Cleopatra. It reminds me of what another, how another writer described it. Antony, the triple pillar of the world transformed into a strumpet's fool. So that's oh, Shakespeare. Very nice. Very nice. Well, you I mean, Shakespeare they're, often they're, 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 uh, they're the two great literary figures of, <laughs> of, uh, of the Western yes. world, aren't they? So, so, so that tradition is absolutely the tradition, I think, that dominates the popular understanding of Antony and Cleopatra, that, that Antony is has been kind of softened and corrupted and literally enslaved by Cleopatra. Um, And that's where we left the last episode. So so we've done three. Uh, We are now around about, what are we, sort of 34, 33 BC, Antony and Cleopatra in Alexandria. Octavian is beginning the propaganda campaign against them. Um, yes. which has sort of been simmering for the last few years, but now really reaches sort so of... So Oct- Octavian needs... I think to Octavian had always set his 
heart on establishing his supremacy over Rome and the whole world. I think that had always been his object. Mm-hmm. And I think he pursues it with a kind of chill ruthlessness. And he, he has a kind of penetrating and slightly cold political intelligence that enables him to recognize that Antony's strategy is a massive source of potential for him. Yeah. Well, I was about to say, he doesn't he realize that Cleopatra is in some ways Antony's greatest asset, but she's also his great weakness. Yeah. Cleopatra is a weapon for... Yeah. Octavian. And I think that's the brilliance that he recognizes that he can turn Antony's great strength against him. Well, so the big challenge that Octavian faces if he's to knock out Antony is that the the Romans, you know, don't want civil war. They've had two brutal bouts of it. Um, Octavian's pitch is that he, you know, he is bringing them peace. So if he launches an attack on Antony, you know, that would be unacceptable. The Roman people would not get behind him. The Western provinces would not get behind him. The Italians would not get behind him. However, if he can present the war as a campaign against Cleopatra, then that's completely different. And Cleopatra is in every way a kind of ideal bogey because she is foreign, she is royal, and she is female. So on every level, every level of Roman political prejudice – that makes her a sinister opponent. Well, let's talk about that last element because we've for, we're into the fourth podcast now in the series, and we've talked a little bit about Cleopatra as a woman and as that rarity a woman exercising political power. But we should perhaps dig a tiny bit more into that because do you think that's what makes her so unsettling? Because some biographers, particularly female biographers, have suggested that. You know, there's a a, a, a sort of a, a bucket loads of misogyny in this, Absol- and that the I Romans are, and the, and that the Romans there is something peculiarly horrific to Roman elite male opinion about a woman leader, a, a foreign woman. Do you think that's true? Do you think it's the femininity yes. that makes Cleopatra so shocking? Um, I, I think it's part of the package. Um, so. The, the historian W.W. W. Tarn, who was a kind of oh, splendid yeah. representative of mid-century classicist class tradition, said of Cleopatra that, that she was Hannibal's only rival as an enemy of Rome, that she inspired almost as much terror in the Romans as Hannibal did. And I, I think that that's a judgment that kind of overdoes it. I don't think she was ever on a level with Hannibal. But I think that it, it does respond correctly to the scale of the propaganda effort that Octavian unleashes. But as is always the case with propaganda, it only works if you're going with the grain of prejudices that already exist. Yeah. And, and the idea of, of Cleopatra as a woman feminizing men, there's a whole set kind of sexual dynamic there that I think it's hard for us to get a handle on because it's very, very alien to us. But essentially for, for, for Romans, the idea of a man being feminized is absolutely the most shocking thing that you could contemplate. The idea that um, a man plays a woman, you know, to a man, let alone to a woman, is absolutely the worst taboo. And so by presenting Antony in that light, you know, it's it's kind of, you know, it's like saying he's, a, you know, in our lights, a kind of paedophile or something. I mean, it's on that level of, of shock and horror. Yeah. So that's that's what Antony's 
That's what Octavian's doing. But he is also, of course, saying that that Antony has ceased to be Roman, that he's become a, a kind of, you know, a, a soft, decadent, depraved Greekling from the East. And that's when we um, get And also stories. that he wants to become a king. And I think the, 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 the kind of monarchical strain is true. I think that that is what Antony's playing with. And I think that, you know, that's a cause of, of you know, it, it, it enables him to draw support in the East. But of course, it's, I mean, it's anathema to uh, yeah. people in Rome for whom the, the word king is, is a, absolutely a dirty word. And it's at this around about this point, Tom. I think that we is it that we get a lot of the stories. So, for example, there's a story about people dressing up as a, the, a friend of theirs called Plancus, who dresses up as a sea nymph for their parties, <laughs> yeah, yes. um, sort of wriggling yes. around, dre- covered in blue. Yes. There's the story about fame, one of the famous Cleopatra stories that historians have spent a lot of time arguing about. Was it chemically possible and all this thing about her swallowing a pearl? Well, which comes the- from 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 very much my friend Pliny the Elder. Yeah. So that's the story that she has a bet with Antony that she can basically serve them the most expensive meal that's ever been served in human history. And she dissolves a pearl in vinegar and drinks it. And people, scholars have actually written articles about, you know, the chemical composition of pearls and whether this would be possible had she softened the pearl beforehand. But isn't the obvious explanation for all these stories that they are produced by Octavian's propagandists and then they turn up in Pliny and Plutarch and Cassius Dio and so on. Yeah. So or do you think there's a grain of truth in them? Do you think some of these <laughs> things probably happened? It, it, very difficult to know, isn't it? Um, I, I think a bit of both. I, I think Antony has the misfortune that, um, so Octavian has two henchmen, one of whom Agrippa has set up this Navy. He's a brilliant Naval commander, um, a brilliant military man, which Octavian absolutely isn't. Uh, but his second right-hand man is a guy called Mycenas, who is brilliant at spotting literary talent. He basically is Peter Mandelson, isn't he? No, well, he's but he's a literary yeah to a degree. But I mean, he he has an eye for literary talent, so he identifies some of the world's greatest poets. You know, the great great writers of Roman literature: so Propertius, Horace, and of course, above all, Virgil. Yeah, and it's their genius that will ensure that what might otherwise have just been kind of crude propaganda becomes woven into poetry that has been read ever since. Yes. Um, and, but there is a further paradox, which is that because they are great poets, they're not just dealing in abuse. They are also able to give a kind of, in the long run, a kind of dignity to their portrayal, certainly of Cleopatra and also to a degree of Antony as well, but particularly to Cleopatra, which plays a crucial role in the kind of the romance and the potency of her of her subsequent reputation. So the famous example of the most famous example of this would be in the Aeneid, the, the great epic of Roman beginnings that Virgil writes. And Aeneas is a Trojan prince who has been told by the, the gods that he has to flee Troy, sail with a band of Trojans, and he will end up um, uh, founding the city that in due course will will result in the foundation of Rome. But he stops off in a city that has just been founded on the North African coast called Carthage, which has been founded by a queen called Dido. Yeah. And Aeneas is tempted to stay and ignore his divine destiny to go off and kind of found the Roman line um, and hang out with Dido. And in the end, he gets reminded by the gods, you know, get a move on, you've got to go and, and, and found Roman, Roman history. Uh, so Aeneas goes and Dido commits suicide. And this supposedly establishes the lifelong hatred between Rome and Carthage that will culminate in Carthage's destruction. But the significance of that is that it's obviously making play with the story of of, of Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah. And 
actually, you know, Dido is presented very, very sympathetically. She has a potency and a power that is also echoed in the poetry of Horace, where he's very rude about Cleopatra, but he can't help but make her seem glamorous and fascinating. So I think that oddly, the the vituperative quality of the propaganda that is aimed at Cleopatra, it certainly blackens her reputation. And it means that, you know, all these kind of traditions of her as a sex mad virago absolutely pass into the kind of cultural mainstream and have been recycled and recycled and recycled. But they have also ensured that she, you know, her character as a remarkable woman, a remarkable leader, um, someone who could uh, capture the heart of uh, two of the greatest men in the world, that that is also a part of the myth. So it's a yeah. kind of, it's a, it's a complicated uh, just one, legacy. Just one question, Tom, before we get back to the, the geopolitics as it were, and the sort of the, the, the military narrative. Um, how much do you think that portrait of Antony and Cleopatra or indeed Dido and Aeneas um, owes to things like Jason and Medea? Because I mean, they would all have been familiar with that story, right? And that's the, the idea of the witch queen, and the sort of gullible hero. I mean, that's really the Antony and Cleopatra story right there, isn't it? Well, again, you know, you asked how much of this is rooted in misogyny. Uh, a lot of these myths, they fuse um, suspicion of foreign royalty with suspicion of the female, because in both the Greek and the Roman traditions, foreign kings are equated with, with effeminacy. Yeah. So um, a, a woman is an ideal representative of these kind of traditions and of course i mean all these all this propaganda is going with the grain of that uh, yeah. that's why that's why it's so effective and why it works all right so let's um, move on from the propaganda to the sort of the hard political and military realities so the breach really becomes obvious at the beginning of 32 bc i would say uh, that's when the two consuls pro antony consuls they flee rome don't they with about a third of the senate to the east it's a bit of an. This is an, a, a slight action replay of yeah, and one of them of, is Domitius Ahenobarbus, who in Shakespeare's play is Ahenobarbus, who is the guy who has those wonderful lines. So Antony and Cleopatra have moved to Ephesus, and they receive the senators there. And it's pretty obvious at this point, isn't it? War hasn't been declared, um, but it's obvious that there's going to be a civil war. It won't be declared as a civil war, will it? I mean, that's a key thing. It will yeah. be declared as a war against Cleopatra. Antony and Cleopatra are in Ephesus. And at this point, some of Antony's friends say, even at this stage, I think you should send her back to Egypt. She's a she's a problem. Because even though she's providing a lot of the money and, and the, the fleet, fleet yeah. um, she, Italy, will never accept her. And actually, one of his friends, a man called Gaminius, gets drunk and says, we'd be better off without her. And Cleopatra, according to the sources, says... Oh, that's great. I'm glad you've said that because now we no longer need to torture you to find out what you really think. And he then, Gaminius, then flees to Octavian. But that, I mean, whether or not that story is true, we don't know. But there's clearly, there's a sort of, um, there's a there's a discipline and a focus on Octavian's side that there isn't on Antony's side. And that, that part of the reason for that, would you say, Thomas, that the Cleopatra is a destabilizing element to the other Roman captains and Absolutely. commanders who are? Yes, yes. And so that's that's the problem that Antony faces is that perforce. I mean, he hasn't really had an, a choice because he's based in Alexandria, not not in Rome. But he has to found his pitch for the world in alliance with Cleopatra, and of course that 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 destabilizes his own side, and it enables Octavian to present himself as the defender of of Rome against 
sinister foreign barbarian queens. Because the next um, thing Octavian does is the will. And yeah. <laughs> now, what, what, so what's the story there? What's going on? Because that would seem slightly baffling to people who are not familiar with sort of the, the legal niceties of kind of Roman politics. Antony has deposited his will with the Vestal Virgins, who are the guardians of the hearth fire of Rome itself in the Forum, the, the kind of great central space in Rome. And, um, you know, it's absolutely sacrosanct. Uh, no question of anyone being allowed to look at it. <laughs> so Octavian goes and grabs it and reads it out to the Senate. And it's full of shocking details. So Antony acknowledges that Caesarian is Julius Caesar's heir again in the will, which is incendiary. Strike, but striking at Octavian. Who is, obviously, yeah. blow at Octavian. He leaves property to Cleopatra, which is that not illegal under Roman yeah. law to leave property to a foreigner? And according to Octavian, because Octavian is the person who rules, reads it out, right? So we yeah, don't, so know, we don't that know what he's... Yeah. Octavian could be making it all up, but Octavian yeah. says that Antony, most, perhaps most shockingly, wants to be buried when he's after his death in Alexandria, not in Rome. I mean, yep. do you think all that's true? Do you think Anthony did? Had <sighs> he knows. gone native, as it were? We don't know. We don't. I, I, my my hunch would be no, but that it's untrue only to the degree that people would accept it was true. Um, I'm just so trying again, to figure that out. Yes, well, okay. Uh, uh, it it's probably heightened, but it's not so heightened that people weren't able to believe it because people clearly did believe it. Yeah, and so it's after that that Octavian stages this ceremony. Which appears to be an old-fashioned ceremony, but he may yeah. have invented. Is that right? Yes. So, yeah, it kind of involves throwing a spear and all this kind of um, very self-conscious kind of antiquarians, a bit like Victorians inventing traditions, you know, yeah. passing them off as time-honoured. Um, and so it identifies Octavian with the ancient, you know, the martial traditions of Rome, where you uh, you declare war on a barbarian enemy and you hurl a spear and priests do all kinds of stuff. And he does that. And also very... An absolute novelty. He gets communities across Italy and the West to swear kind of oath of loyalty to him as the, as the commander of the Roman effort against this barbarian queen. So now we're into the war. War has basically been declared. Antony and Cleopatra are in the East. They're basically in Patras in Greece. Octavian is going to try and cross from Italy. And now, the, the baffling thing to me here is Ant what Antony's strategy is, because Antony, it really matters to him that he has to keep the sea lanes to Alexandria open, yeah. because obviously that's the supplies of his fleet. He also wants to keep hold of Greece. But Octavian strikes east. Agrippa takes his fleet and kind of hoovers up some of the ports yeah. on the Peloponnese. Octavian crosses his, with his land army to Corfu and then to Epirus. What I don't, what I've never really understood is how it happens that Antony manages to end up being cornered without really having fought any battles. He's, he's well, they get bottled up. So they get bottled yeah. up in the Bay of Actium. Exactly. And the, which is, so it's the Gulf of Ambracia. It's a place called Actium. It's a sort of yeah. fly bitten. It's like, a, is it a fishing port? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's pretty much nothing, basically. isn't it? How is it that, I mean, what's, what explains his passivity? Because he basically allows Octavian and Agrippa to blockade him in this crescent, big crescent-shaped bay. And, I mean, why, is, why doesn't he take the fight to the enemy? He wants to fight a land war. Yeah. Uh, Octavian refuses to fight it. Uh, and because his ships are blockaded, the option is either to starve or to, fight a, or to try and make a run for it with the ships or to fight a sea battle. Yeah. So and those are the options. And this is the sort of uncertainty, isn't it? Because it's the summer of 31 BC. Antony is there. Cleopatra is there. They're blockaded in Actium, which is in kind of northwestern Greece. Agrippa's ships 
blockading them. And they have this great debate. Do we break out by land or by sea? And most of the Roman officers seem to have wanted to break out by land because obviously, obviously because they, they're used to fighting on lands. And Cleopatra, this great council of war, she carries the day because she says, what? Leave my f- Are you mad? If we yeah. leave, because they can't win the war without a fleet, right? They can't win the war without a fleet. Exactly. Um, and the, you know the, the 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 troops the legions could retreat. Yeah. So the, in a way, the fleet is more important. So they decide that they are going to have to launch this colossal breakout. And I, well, it, it's not. This is the thing. It's not clear what they've decided. Are they going to yeah. break out, or are they going to fight a naval? And I'm yeah. not sure. Maybe you have an opinion, but I'm not sure they know themselves. I I, I don't know what what they're thinking, and I don't think anyone does because, because what happens is. That, well, the, the the traditional story is is that they sail out and then Cleopatra makes a dash for it with her fleet for Alexandria. Antony sees it and instead of fighting like a Roman, he then goes after her like yeah. a kind of a, a, a love sick puppy, follow, a love sick puppy following his his mistress. So we don't know whether that's you know is he playing the coward as Octavian spin doctors have it, or is this kind of part of a premeditated move to try and get the fleet out so that they can go and transport the army somewhere i mean we we just don't know but what um, suggests tom and, and i think and, and i think there is a p- particular problem with making sense of actium because it, it, it's the foundational battle for what you know the entire augustan regime octavian becomes augustus and therefore for the entire uh dynasty that that augustus yeah. founds so he so and his spin doctors pick it, it up, don't they? It's it's impossible to know, really. And I think part of what you're saying is I don't entirely understand what's going on. Is that we we don't, we don't you know? It's the accounts of it are not an account fundamentally of an explicable campaign. It's an account of an episode that is foundational for Augustus's legitimacy. Yeah. So the sort of just to explain it very simple terms for. Um, listeners who are not familiar with it, Antony comes out with, according to the accounts, he comes out with about 200 ships, fights this sort of battle. Then Cleopatra comes behind, but instead of helping him, she keeps going out to the open sea. And Antony just, for, for no reason whatsoever, abandons the rest of his fleet and his army, who are all waiting on the beach. And he heads off after her. Um, but the thing that's quite interesting, Tom, is that the sources say so they shoot off. They're, they're through the blockade. She has loaded her treasure onto her flagship. So she's got all the, the cash with her as well as her own ships. Um, but the sources say that Antony, during the rest of the voyage, is sulking, sitting yeah, on his but, own and staring but, into Or do you think that but too is part this, of the propaganda? Of course it is. None of this is likely to be true. Oh, Tom, you know, it's, it's, it's so... You know, this is this is stuff that is being produced by someone who has won a, a crushing, overwhelming yeah. victory, and who is the master of the world, and has absolute. You know, he 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 is a master of this kind of stuff, uh, and it's really, really difficult to strip away the paint of that and see what's actually going on with Antony and, okay. and, and Cleopatra. Um, so what we do so know is they get to Alexandria. Well, they, they get, get to them. Alexandria, and, and they've they gone to go- Alexandria because they-, they 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 seriously think that they can raise more money. It's a bit like Pompey going after Phasaelus. Do you go to Egypt because that's rich enough that there is scope for raising another fleet, raising yeah. more men, raising more troops, and that's what they're aiming to do. But, but Antony Antony first goes to he goes to Libya, doesn't he? And he goes yeah. to try and rouse the garrison there. And with his classic lack of kind of political acuity, he doesn't realize that they'll already have thrown in their lot with Octavian 
I think he's been he's been the ruler of the world for so long that it's difficult for him to face up to the full implications of his his fall from grace. Yeah. So then he goes back to goes back to Egypt. Back to so Egypt. Should we have, should we take a break there? We and shall then take a break. When and we then come we'll back, have the. I have a poem, another poem from Cavafy, one of his most famous I think, Tom, poems. A lot of people are listening to these podcasts just on the off chance that you'll read a poem. <laughs> get a bit more poetry, um, and then we will we'll get to the the climax of the, the day. Story. No more. Okay, see you in a minute. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Listen closely. As a master painter carefully brushes Benjamin Moore Regal Select down the seam of the wall. Mm. It's like poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. Hello, welcome back to what is the last part of our four-part epic History. I actually feel sad, Tom. Yeah. Well, so there is a sense of 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 departure, of of farewell, um, and this uh, it's a story that appears in in Plutarch. It's said that um, one night Antony's there, and people hear the sound of beautiful music, um, and this inspired uh, one of the most famous poems that Cavafy, the great Alexandrian poet, wrote. Uh, and it's called "The God Forsakes Antony." Suddenly at midnight, when an invisible troop is heard passing with exquisite players, with voices, do not lament your luck, now utterly exhausted, your acts that failed, your life's projects, all ended in delusion. Like a man who's all along been ready, like a man made bold by it, say your last farewell to her, to Alexandria, who is leaving. First, foremost, do not fool yourself and say it was a dream, or that your ears were tricked. Do not stoop to such vacant hopes. Like a man who's all along been ready, like a man made bold by it, in a way fitting the dignity that made you worthy of such a city, approach the window steadily, and listen, moved but not needy, and disgruntled like a coward, listen, taking your final pleasure to the sounds, to that mystic troop's rare playing, and say your last farewell to her, to that Alexandria you are losing. So that's an allusion to Antony hearing the god Dionysus, who had always been his great patron, abandoning him. Well, that's the and story, isn't it? That people, the, story, that the historians yeah. tell that um, yeah. people of Alexandria late at night heard this trumpets and clattering in the street and Dionysus and his revelers were leaving the city. Abandoning Antony. Abandoning Antony. And there is a kind of, I think the, 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 the last days of, I mean, actually they're not last days, they're last months. The last months of Antony and Cleopatra do have this kind of tragic Wait, elegiac. They do, don't they? I mean, they had they had made a play for the world, 
I mean, how many of us can say that? And and it had all gone horribly wrong. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the interesting thing I would say is that they don't think at first that it's necessarily curtains, rather like Pompey, as you said before. Yeah. So um, Cleopatra has, ve- while Antony has been faffing around in Libya trying to raise more troops, she has two escape plans. One is she thinks about possibly going to Spain, where there are iron and silver mines, um, but she decides against that. The other, which is much more interesting, and we talked right at the beginning of this series about the the, the legacy of Alexander the Great, she clearly thinks about going to India, about, you know, she knows that there is the history of Greeks out there. She has ships um, taken to the, the Red Sea, but once again, Octavian is a step ahead, so he has suborned the Nabataeans in that area, and they attack the ships and burn them, so that avenue is is closed off. Antony comes back to Alexandria, um, so we're in late 31, and they, they sort of settle back into a little bit of their old routine, so they're still feasting. They now, they used to call themselves the, what do they call themselves? The inimitable livers, and they now call themselves the partners in death, the synapothanomonoi. Um, that's not a word you want to pronounce after, <laughs> after, after you're drunk after, after, after Alexandrian drink, feast. Yeah, after drinking a pearl. Um, yeah. So, so there they are, and and they're negotiating with Octavian, um, Antony, and Cleopatra. They sent him a crown. They uh, at some point it seems that Cleopatra may have offered to abdicate if and if he lets Caesarian, could live Caesarian which is never going to happen, Pharaoh. And Octavian takes the gifts, but he sends no reply back. I mean, why does he need? He doesn't need to. He has the whip hand, and then he invades in early thirty. And basically, you know, we said right at the beginning that Ptolemy the first had chosen Egypt because it was really easy to defend, and and, and you know, Octavian just kind of blows all that away because he just comes and defeats all resistance, and by the end of July, he's camped outside Alexandria, and it's absolutely clear the game is up. And Antony, so again, I mean, you said before that the how much of the the propaganda and stuff can you believe? But the accounts, like Plutarch, they show Antony in quite a noble light at the yeah. end, don't they? Yeah. He's desperate. He's absolutely desperate to have this kind of last stand. Yeah. And there's this almost heartbreaking scene where he goes out with his army. He has his fleet out as well. And he thinks he's going to make this sort of Tolkien-esque, yeah. heroic charge. And then he realizes they, the rest of them have all just come to defect and to yeah. give up. Now, what's interesting is that... Um, while he's doing all this, Cleopatra has a plan of her own, clearly, to deal with Octavian. And she's got this – I mean, anyone who's seen the play, Tom, will know about the mausoleum. So she's built this mausoleum. It's half-built, anyway, in this sort of palace quarter. And she has this plan that she's going to barricade herself inside the mausoleum with all her gold and all her silks and spices, basically all the treasure that Octavian will need to pay off his troops. And that Octavian will have to deal with her if he wants to get his hands on all the the loot. And then you have this really weird um, series of events where, so Antony's seen everybody defect. He comes back into the city in a terrible state, kind of floods of tears, misery, all the rest of it. And then somebody says to him, he says, well, where's Cleopatra? Oh, she's in the mausoleum. And he either assumes or has been lied to and is told that she's dead. What do you think? Do you think she deliberately misled him or do you think he... I don't know. I uh, I think it's impossible to know. See, I think I think there's no reason for her to mislead him. 
I think he thinks he's just in a terrible state. Well, the, the, I mean, there is there is um, there is a tradition, and I can't remember which historian it may be. Dio says, says Cleopatra is gearing up to have a pitch at Octavian. Yeah. Having, yeah, having had right. a crack at Caesar and Antony, she's now getting ready to just going for the, she's going for the, yeah, so, the hat trick. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> again impossible to know whether that's true. But anyway, but, according to the accounts, Antony, when he hears that he thinks she's dead, he says to his slave, who's called Eros, "Will you, will you, you know, please kill me?" Eros kills himself <laughs> instead, yeah, which is not helpful, is it? Very poor behaviour, I would say. So Antony then stabs himself in the chest, and he's. Yeah, you know, this is all. This is all pretty much in Shakespeare because Shakespeare got it all from Plutarch. So Antony has, has stabbed himself in the chest, but he's not dead. He's done it in an incompetent way. Surprise, surprise! So servants carry him to the mausoleum, and then there's this dreadful scene where Cleopatra and her two mates, Iras and Charmian, kind of haul Antony up on some ropes. This absolutely—I mean, you can, if, yeah. if this actually happened, it must have yeah. been an absolutely appalling scene. This dying Antony, blood yeah. pouring everywhere. These women dragging him up on the ropes. They pull him up into the mausoleum, and then he dies, and that's the end of him. But that's not the end of Cleopatra, Tom. No, because Octavian is moving in. So, what's the, do you think Octavian at this stage thinks Egypt is finished? Egypt is. I'm just going to absorb it into my empire. Or do you think he he thinks he can get a deal with Cleopatra? He doesn't need a deal with Cleopatra. I, I think you know he he the public the public take is that he wants to do to Cleopatra what Caesar did to Cleopatra's sister uh, Arsinoe. Uh, yeah decade or so before, which is to um, lead her in chains through the streets of Rome as he celebrates his Egyptian triumph, yeah. which would obviously be an unconscionable humiliation for Cleopatra. Um, just as it was good for Caesar that Pompey got dispatched, so basically, I, I think for all concerned, it would be, you know, Cleopatra commits suicide, it's probably the best way out. Uh, lots of d- debate about this, because of course, what everyone knows about Cleopatra's death is that uh, she has a an asp smuggled in in a, a basket full of figs mm-hmm. and pears, uh, and that she supposedly clasps it to her breast um, and and dies. Uh, and she dies, and she's found by Octavian, fully yeah. arrayed in her you know her, her her royal regalia. So the famous Shakespeare lines, you know, to her to her to Charmian and and. Is, is to array her, you know, give me my robe, put on my crown. I have immortal longings in me. And of course these, you know, it does help her to become immortal, but the, what is an asp? Traditionally it's said to be a viper, but that would be wrong because of the, the poison of a viper would be, would be hideous. I mean, you'd kind of, you, you die looking awful. A cobra would be better. And a cobra, mm. the, you know, the uraeus, the symbol that you have on the pharaonic headdress. Um, you know, you kind of you 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 just pass away. Uh, so that seems likelier, and the word would get out that she, in a sense, has claimed an immortality, a literal immortality, because for for her for, you know for her Egyptian subjects, Cleopatra is dying. In dying, is making play with these very very ancient traditions, the role that the, the cobra plays and the mythology of it all. So I think that that's what she's doing. Do you, but but I, I think that, I think she's it's more complicated than that, Tom. Oh, even more complicated. Well, I think, well, first of all, they've had a meeting, Octavian and Cleopatra, haven't they? Well, supposedly. Um, the yes. day before she dies. There are two different accounts. So one is that he, she dresses up and tries to seduce him. And the other is that she dresses down and kind of cries and, and says it was all Anthony. He made me do it. And there's also this great story that she, 
she sort of strews the room with um, Julius Caesar's letters and pictures of Julius Caesar in an attempt to kind of um, persuade Octavian. I mean, we we can't know which of these stories, if if either of them are true, but it must have been obvious to her at that point that exactly what you say, that Octavian was going to lead her in a triumph through Rome and that she decided that would be a humiliation. And she has this dinner party and there's the story about the old man smuggling in the snake in the basket of figs. But the most of the Roman chroniclers themselves don't believe in the the snake story because Plutarch says people searched the room for the snake and they couldn't find any trace of it. And people have subsequently said, you know, the Egyptian cobra, which is the most likely snake, first of all, it's hard to hide in a basket of figs. It would have to be a big basket. It would have to be a bloody big basket. Secondly, it's not always fatal. And thirdly, if the stories are true and that she and her handmaidens, Iras and Charmian, all die, how are you, how do you persuade a snake to – what if the snake doesn't bite you? And also, does the snake, can the snake kill three people? It probably well, can't. So I, th- I think the fact that the Romans, Ra- Roman sources tend to discount it yeah. suggests precisely that it's true. Because oh, my I think God, the, Tom, that is radical. <laughs> well, it's a tradition that they want to fight, that they want to say isn't true. They, mm-hmm. they, they poo-poo it. And the reason that they poo-poo it is obviously that it has a kind of resonance. It has a power. It means that Cleopatra lives on in the memories and the imaginings of, of, of Egyptians. So whether it's, whether it was, whether the, the, the snake was there and they take some other kind of poison, but it's yeah. attributed to, the, I mean, who, who knows? But I think the tradition that Cleopatra commits suicide with a snake that's almost certainly a cobra, I think that I would put money that that is true that that is part of the tradition that, you know, we've talked about how Cleopatra is mediated through mainly Roman sources. Yeah. But I think that there are obviously hints throughout the Roman sources, particularly where they deny something, that there you have a sense of, of how Cleopatra wanted to spin herself. And I think that she is spinning herself there as she has spun herself throughout her career as someone who is more than mortal, as someone who is um part of the pantheon of egypt's ancient gods and yeah. she has you know she she has you know th- these are the immortal longings you don't think the Shakespeare romans give her the snake because the snake is a recognized symbol of egypt and it just seems a fitting end to the story rather no, than she had a vial would, of why would they have an interest in doing that well it just makes her i mean some of cleopatra's biographers think that that's the case um i think they're wrong you think they're absolute baboons? Yeah. So <laughs> I don't think they're baboons. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think that um, we we are playing with very you know traditions that have been massively spun, and none of them may be true. But I think in this case that the the evidence, if the, something there that is working in Cleopatra's favour, that Roman sources are denying, it implies to me that there is a tradition there, and the tradition okay. itself may be spun by Cleopatra's followers, but that's enough to to say that the the, the propaganda war well is, is i mean ongoing. what we can probably agree on is that it's impossible to know because so much of this is through layers of kind of yeah. spin and, and fairy tale but and- what is also possible to say is that the, the power of this resonates Absolutely. throughout the centuries and the millennia and but, means that but it's not just a resonant story because it's a resonant story it's a resonant story because what happens next is octavian abolishes the kingdom of egypt he absorbs it within Rome. I mean, this is a this is an absolutely colossal moment in. Well, ish. I, I, I mean, actually, he takes it, he takes it over and and he rules it as as a pharaoh. Well, he's so, shown as a pharaoh, isn't he? In iconography, he is. He is. So this it, it's not a Roman province. 
So there's no governor. Is that right? Well, no senator is appointed to govern it. So it's an, a, a question which is the kind of the lower order. Yeah. And senators are, are forbidden from entering it. So they're not allowed to step foot in it in Egypt. It's yeah. exclusive. It's, it is Octavian's private property, which is basically what Antony had been planning to do. So Octavian, very coolly, very cynically, lays claim you know, to, that both Caesar and Antony had been interested in, which is establishing Egypt as a kind of private dynastic fiefdom. And that is what he does. And that then means that he controls basically the grain supply to Rome. Yeah. And it's the underpinning of what will become his kind of hidden monarchical way of ruling. Uh, and we will do an episode on... on we definitely you know, will. On, on, so just before we, we on tie Augustus. up Cleopatra herself, just her family, Caesarian, her son, is murdered. He's betrayed by his tutor. Yeah, shortly after. And yeah. murdered by the, by the Romans. Her other children are well-treated, aren't they? They're taken back to Rome. Octavia looks after them. And yes. We, we don't know what happens to the boys. They get taken back to Rome, but... We're not sure what happens to them, but it's Selene, who's the really interesting one, isn't it? She's married to a fellow called Prince Juba. Juba the second of Mauritania. Yeah, and, yep. they, and they found a little kind of a little court dynasty of their that own. lasts till the time of uh, Caligula, I think. Doesn't Caligula yeah. kill her yep. son, Ptolemy, surprise, surprise, uh, <laughs> yeah. because he had the temerity to wear a purple cloak or yeah, something? better than him. Got yeah. staged in the amphitheater. Very yes. Caligula-like behaviour. Yeah. Um, I, I hope you're not going to do a revisionist Caligula like you've done a revisionist Nero. Tom. Mm, well, we, I think an episode on Caligula would be good. I, it would be I very good. Views on Caligula. So that's the end of Cleopatra's descendants. And uh, Egypt itself, I mean, actually for ordinary Egyptians, the transition from the end of Cleopatra the seventh to Roman rule, do you think it was even noticeable to most Egyptians? Not really. Um, but I think, you know, Cleopatra and Augustus are both ripping them off. They're both exploiting them. Uh, you know, they're kind of milch cows. Um, yeah. But Cleopatra loved Egypt um, and the Egyptians love her and they preserve traditions and memories of her that last into the Christian period, into the Muslim period. Um, so in the 10th century, you have Arab writers who are, who are clearly drawing on Coptic traditions that in turn are drawing on native Egyptian traditions where she is hailed as a great philosopher, um, a, a, a yeah. great great figure and there you i think you do have kind of echoes of of the kind of starring role that cleopatra gave herself in the drama of annual egyptian life where the pharaoh had always played that role the guarantor of um fertility of the nile flooding of crops um the cycle of of the year the cycles of life and death which is why a crucial part of why cleopatra you know, endures as this yeah. kind of a blazing legend. Well, let's return. Let's end with the question with which we began, which was Judith Downey's question. She says, I bought Dominic book, Dominic's book on Cleopatra for my granddaughters. And before I give it to them, can you tell me if Cleopatra was a role model for girls? So Cleopatra, a role model, Tom. Or, or where does Cleopatra stand in your estimation? I, I think she's a role model for girls in the way that Alexander would be a role model for boys. I, I, so a splendid role model. Encourage all kinds of behavior that perhaps wouldn't necessarily be encouraged. Um, but I think she is one of the most remarkable figures in ancient history. Um, in world history, surely. In, I mean, yeah. Uh, and I think that her story um, richly merits the kind of aura of, of legend and fascination that it's always had. It, it is an extraordinary story, and I think that she was an extraordinary figure. Splendid. Well, I can't um, improve on that uh, on that verdict. I think she absolutely was an extraordinary figure. 
probably the greatest example in history of a of a woman in a man's in a male dominated world sort of struggling to to keep afloat and actually as you said right at the beginning she she does pretty well i she mean she does she rules you know, a- egypt egypt was literally a breadbasket <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in both senses, it was very rich, but it was also absolutely on its uppers. And what Cleopatra achieves is astonishing. So, uh, and a brilliant story, you know, an amazing story, not just for for adults, but for children as well. Uh, and I think it's wonderful, Dominic, that you've you've written this. Well, we should talk about there, uh, and for further reading. We always like to give a bit of further reading. There is yeah, Tom Holland's two books. Tom there? Holland's Rubicon. Uh, for those of you who are older than. 12 or 13. And for those of you who you know people who are younger than 13, you know what to buy. I don't need to sell it. So we will see you uh, next time for more Rest is History fun. And uh, well, Dominic, we should, we could just one last thing is that forthcoming episode will be um, our version of Love Island featuring a range of historical hotties, um, (laughs) babes and hunks. uh, And it's possible, I suppose, that Cleopatra may May feature in that. So she may... She may be back. Um, All right. We'll we'll see see you for Love Island. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.